0: this is sarah bordeev and you are listening to PodSAM, the podcast channel of sam magazine the voice of the mountain resort industry on this episode of pod sam we're going green and bringing you a conversation between three of our summit series mentors on sustainability This leadership development program brings together industry leaders, the mentors, and 10 young managers from resorts across the US and Canada for conversations on topics such as management skills, growth, and the future of the mountain resort industry. We've been sharing these conversations on earlier episodes of PodSAM and in the pages of SAM Magazine. So not to worry, subscribe to both and catch up on the conversations from both this year and last year. As this was recorded from actual conference calls, there's the typical phone interference and such, but it's totally worth it. We'll pass it off to SAM publisher Olivia Rowan to kick us off.
1: All right. Well, welcome everybody for our third installment of the Summit series. This call is going to be on sustainability, and I want to... Start with a, a, a brief sort of description for our new mentors on the call and and some of the mentees, and our podcast audience. This program um, we started last year, and really it was to address this problem that we have a lot of leaders who are aging out and retiring, and we wanted to make sure that the next generation of leaders really had access to folks that they could seek advice and help and feel connected to the industry and and have resources that they can turn to to help them continue on in their careers in the industry and go on to lead our, our industry. So that's where this program came about, was connecting um, a group of mentees to some esteemed mentors. And we started out the program just sort of transcribing the calls and writing articles. And halfway through, we stumbled upon um, podcasting, and and we hear all the time how useful and helpful these conversations are for folks to listen to and create um, as a platform for dialogue at their resort. So thanks to everybody for participating and, and know that you're helping a great many people sort of navigate this fun world of uh, the ski industry that we're in. So our three mentors on this call that we're lucky to have, Rich Berkeley, who is the Senior VP of Strategy and Business Development from the Aspen Skiing Company. Welcome, Rich. Thank and you. Yeah, Peggy Hiller, who's VP of Operations, Arapahoe Basin, Colorado. Hi, Peggy. Hi. And Kim Locke, VP of uh, at Lake Louise, Alberta. So we're thrilled to have all three of you welcome, Kim, and Peggy, Hi, and Rich. Paul, why don't you take it away and kick us off?
2: Thanks so much, Olivia. Really appreciate it. And welcome, everybody, to our sort of kitchen table, roundtable conversation. Today's topic is, of course, sustainability, and welcome also to our mentees who are listening in and who will be chiming in a little bit later on with their questions. Uh, so as, as as we talked about before with uh, each of you uh, who are mentors, uh, we're going to have an informal uh, sort of kitchen table conversation about the topic of sustainability. It's an important practice that uh, many resorts are involved in and have been for quite some time, even before it became fashionable. But I'd love to hear from each of you um, about uh, some of the sustainability init- initiatives, or one in particular that really stands out to you as uh, uh, indicative or sort of uh, symbolic of the decision-making process that goes uh, goes into it. So, if you could tell me about an initiative at your resort and the and the process that you use to to either say yay or nay to it. Um, why don't we start with Peggy? Then uh, we'll go to Kim and then Rich.
3: Sure. Um, Well, I would say one of our very first initiatives dealt with waste, which I think is um, certainly one that you would qualify as low-hanging fruit, Um, and it was tricky. It wasn't just strictly um, landfill bins and recycling bins right next to them. But we really went all in on compost as soon as we possibly could. And this is probably six or seven years ago. And the uh, it, it took a while for everybody to really, truly understand what we were trying to do with waste. And it there was pushback, for sure, um, for making it more tricky, let's say, for our food and beverage um, world and um, it, it led to us rethinking um, plastic silverware versus regular silverware. There was definitely good conversation going on there. But then the trickiest piece, it still is, is how do we help our guests to understand how to throw away stuff, as you guys, I'm sure, have experienced in your life. You get a tray of food and you're not sure where you put things at the end when you're um, finished with your meal. So. So that was that was a big piece for us, but more than anything, I think it really embedded a culture of sustainability here at Arapahoe Basin um, because it was something that somebody had to figure out how to make work for them, whether they were a guest or employee, every single day that they were interacting with a basin
2: you know, what was the genesis of that idea? Like, how did it come to be, uh, you know, when you sat around as a leadership team to to say, oh, we should definitely do this, or we should, some reasons why we wouldn't do it. You know, can you sort of give us an inside, you know, a fly in the wall perspective of that conversation about how you got to yes on that?
3: Well, so we have, at Arapahoe Basin, we're not the biggest um, employee area, but we had somebody, and she still is our hero of sustainability. She actually just won that award from um, NSA last spring, but her name is Shaw Nicholas, and she is our um, senior sustainability manager, but she was passionate about sustainability and brought that passion to Arapahoe Basin. She also wears the hat of being our guest services manager. And um, she knew that it was the right thing to do, that it, it, it felt good, it was the right thing to do for the earth and, and um, where we're headed, but it was hard to get everybody on board that we could also make it work from a business perspective. Um, and there were definitely some stops and starts on how this works. We actually make a commitment because we can't find a um, a waste hauler to pick up compost for us that we have had to get people involved from our own staff to take those smelly bins of compost um, to the landfill at least twice a week. Um, So I would say it was a little bit of a, um, pardon the pun, organic decision. (laughs) Um, And then grew into once we really wrapped our heads around what it all entailed, a, a major conversation at the executive level.
2: Great, Peggy, thanks so much. Uh, Kim, can you share an example or a story of of, uh, of a decision-making process around sustainability that you and your team experienced?
4: Yeah, so I wanted to talk about our summer program. So obviously summer is a uh, huge discussion in the ski industry, how to maximize revenue and uh, keep uh, keep everything going over the summer. And so when we first started looking at expanding summer operations, probably about 20 years ago now, the question was, okay, well, what what are we going to do? Do we do mountain biking? Do we do all of the other various typical activities that ski areas do in the summer? And what we ended up deciding was, no, we're not going to go that route. We are going to center our summer programming on nature and interpretive programming to really showcase our location in the national park and what we have to offer that may be unique and different to what some other areas need to offer. So we've got a lot of bears. We've got black bears and grizzly bears, but it's the grizzlies that we're most concerned with in our area. And so one of the primary challenges was what to do to minimize human-bear interactions and allow the bears to live uh, and exist with minimum interference from people. So the solution that we came up with was actually an electric fence to basically keep people out of the areas that bears frequent. They really like hanging out on our open ski runs because of the vegetation that grows there. So they basically uh, situate themselves on the ski area all summer long. So what we do is we enclose our base area and our mid mountain lodge with these electric fences and no one is permitted to enter into the grizzly bear habitat. And then if a bear happens to wander up into the upper alpine, we close our hiking trails so that they can have their space. And so we had to give up mountain biking, we have to give up mountain coasters, we have to uh, give up a lot of stuff because of the fact that we share the mountain with the bears. And then also we wanna protect our vegetation as well. And then the other thing that we do is we, we close down the mountain to staff and visitors by 7 p.m. because uh, the bears have uh, have free reign at dusk, they're most active, so they kind of need this time to themselves. So, In terms of cost, it's really hugely expensive, and we forgo a lot of revenue for events, weddings, other activities, but it's basically what we need to do. So in terms of the decision-making process, we had to basically make that strategic decision that we are a unique ski area, we've got something to offer that other areas don't necessarily have, and let's leverage that to the extent possible. So we've really centered ourselves on wildlife viewing, interpretive programming, and try to make the economics of that make sense as much as possible. And, uh, and just kind of be who we are and not, not be, uh, not be scared of that, not need to be the same as everybody else, but really offer the consumer something different. And, uh, and take it from there in terms of trying to make the economics make sense. Sure, we would Probably make a lot more money if we could have mountain biking, but you've got to deal with what you've got and leverage that to the extent possible.
2: That's really interesting, and and just we'll get into some discussions later about trade offs and other things that need to be uh, considered and thought of as as these big decisions get made. Uh, but I can only imagine uh, the dialogue and discussion around uh, you know around around that you know that that led you to that um, conclusion that it makes more sense for you. Uh, whether it's your, you know, organizational philosophy or your values or just kind of just purely to differentiate yourselves. It's really very interesting to to hear that story. Thank you so much, Kim. Um, Rich, can you share a story uh, for us?
5: Yeah, we had um, several years ago gone through the usual drills on efficiency. We had retrofitted everything to fluorescent and then later on to LED. We had composting, recycling, and we were really... Um, working on energy. And one of our goals was to be carbon neutral. And um, when we started firing up snowmaking systems and lifts, 44 lifts, um, I realized that all of our initiatives, no matter how effective they were, were not going to even come close. So we were looking for other things and we looked at micro hydro and we did do a micro hydro project and probably will do more But the one that resonated the most was um, coal-fired methane. And we have a bunch of abandoned coal mines in the area, not necessarily in Aspen, but um, in nearby valleys. And we were able to get the rights to block one off and use the methane that is bleeding out of the mines um, as a result of the coal mining and capture that and run generators. And so I think it's been now six years. Um, We were able to do that and then sell that electricity Back into the Holy Cross power grid and we put in these three one megawatt generators so we generate three megawatts it's been going 24 hours a day seven days a week 365 days a year for since we opened it we have not shut down for one hour and it's a generates baseline power for the grid and combined using that year-round it offsets our electric use um, over over hundred percent but more importantly methane is a very potent greenhouse gas it's 23 times more um, dangerous than carbon. And so to eliminate that, the carbon offset was even bigger. It was 23 times bigger than what we would be doing with um, carbon-fired. And the best part about this project is it makes money. It actually has a positive NOI. So the investment was several million dollars, but we've been pulling down 600 to $700,000 a year in electric sales um, with, with um, after the investment was made. And we continue to do that for the life of the mine which we anticipate to be 30 to 50 years
2: that's incredible what a great story can you maybe walk us through um you know how how did this uh you know someone must have come to you with an idea or someone came to someone with this idea uh to capture this uh capture methane um when from the time it uh, this idea came to you to the time it actually got implemented how about how long was that and what were some of the more dramatic conversations that happened during that time
5: yeah it was certainly not as easy as I made it sound so the the idea this is a very common thing in Europe, so we had seen the the concept in in play and if you go to uh, central spain there 's a bunch, um most of the area is powered off of abandoned mines, and I think Hungary does a lot of it as well so the concept was there, and we um had a big uh a, a mine accident that this is about fifteen years ago where um the mine was abandoned and it was not a uh, it was a machine that got I guess crushed or buried in the mine and it made it um, ineffective for them to keep going on so that those two things kind of started the conversation once we started looking into it uh, it became extremely complex so the technology to cap the mines we would really returning to Europe Um, if you you know how you see those um, offshore oil wells where they're burning the uh, they have the flare going on well that that is methane that they're burning off. So it's a byproduct of oil and and, uh, coal mining. And so what we have the concept and now we're trying to implement. And we knew that how much we could get out of the mine as far as methane, we had done some tests on that. So we knew that about three megawatts of power was what this mine could produce. And setting up the generators was the easiest part. The harder part was working with the, the energy companies. So there's two things that we learned. The first is that in the state of Colorado, at least, the energy generation companies are separate from the energy transmission companies so those two things are, are they different companies and you have to deal with both of them the energy generation companies are statutorily capped at how much they can do with coal versus renewables and, and it's a weird thing set up several um, decades ago where they have to burn coal to uh, generate power by law and the third is ownership of the transmission lines So to get into the grid to actually use the power, um, in this particular case, we had to go through three separate companies that own different transmission lines that are separate from the power company. We were able to get a waiver through the state that allowed 3% of, in our case, Holy Cross's energy to be renewable. Um, Hopefully, we're going to get that to a much higher number here in the next few years. Um, And once we did that, we were able to negotiate with the power Transmission companies, the power line companies, to, to basically lease their lines to get the energy to where it was needed. We don't necessarily know if we use our own energy, it just goes into the grid as a fungible resource and uh, it's just part of the uh, overall power system.
0: The Podsam conversation continues after we thank Podsam and Summit Series partner, Mountain Guard. How many skier visits are you doing? 5,000? 5, 5 million? I'm gonna guess it's somewhere in between. Specializing exclusively in insuring the ski industry since 1962, Mountain Guard has become the largest writer of ski resort insurance in North America. No matter your size, your resort needs the expertise and experience that Mountain Guard can provide. Click over to mountainguard.com where you'll be able to make quick contact with their Eastern or Western experts. Customers know them as Tim Barnhorst, Tim Hendrickson, and Bo Adams.
2: I'd love to maybe kind of build off of that a little bit because, you know, some of the decision making that went into the the decision that, you know, to capture this methane was, you know, financial. And I want to kind of turn back to Kim a little bit to understand more about the decision making around um, that you made the decision to support the the natural habitat versus uh, going all in on some of the other summer activities.
4: Yeah, of course. I think part of it boils down to just a fundamental appreciation and recognition of our national park environment. And it's really key and fundamental to everything that we do and every activity that we propose and projects that we propose. So we we work in conjunction very closely with Parks Canada that uh, that's the government agency that is in charge of everything that goes on in the national parks. And at the end of the day, you know, we are almost partners in putting on a great ski experience for people. And so to, to push hard for mountain biking or for various other activities is, is kind of in conflict with that relationship. So maintaining the relationship with our Uh, regulators and governing bodies and kind of the the people that oversee things is really key because if we don't have that then we don't have much so that was uh, something that was really underpinning the decision sure we could have pushed hard and probably or maybe you know would have gotten more activities at the end of the day but after a lot of discussion it was determined that you know what it's, it's just not right for us and so we, we made the decision that in this specific instance of summer activities, we are going to give up some revenue in, uh, in favor of doing you know, what we consider to be the right thing ecologically. Ecological integrity is one of our very highest key values, and so we really wanted to honor that. And to say, you know what, let's uh, let's differentiate ourselves in terms of summer offerings, and uh, this is this is what's right for us, and we'll go all in and go with that. But it wasn't an easy decision, certainly.
2: Yeah, but at the end definitely.
4: of the day, it's, uh, it's the right thing to do for us.
2: That's great. Thanks a lot, Kim. Um, Peggy, I had a follow-up question for for you as well with respect to. Uh, the work that that you've been doing there, you know, you said you started with, you know, composting. I'm kind of curious to know uh, what the next chapter or chapters of the story will be uh, where you are. So, you know, what, you know, has, has there been, you know, a, a groundswell of uh, support and other initiatives happening as a result, um, you know, is, you know, what kinds of conversations are happening across the organization to you know, keep that momentum going?
3: Yeah, uh, thanks for asking that, because certainly um, composting and and our our waste stream is a big focus, but it's it's not been by far the only focus. And um, our executive team actually um, hired um, uh, the Brendel Group. Um, I believe the mentees had some resources um, where you heard Judy Dorsey speaking um, in a uh, YouTube video. And the Brendel Group has been a big friend to the National Skiers Association and certainly Arapahoe Basin in helping us. We actually were awarded um, a grant through the Sustainable Slopes um, grant cycle that the NSAA puts on. And what that afforded us was some hours of consulting from the Brendel Group, and we utilized that over the course of last ski season. We've been doing a lot of things, but what our focus was last ski season was to work with our executive team of eight people and really come up with a sustainability strategic plan that is deeply rooted into the financial performance and the financial success of Arapahoe Basin and the rest of our overall company strategic plan. Um, And we had been doing, as I said earlier, a lot of other sustainability initiatives, including um, adding solar panels to new buildings, um, lighting retrofits. Um, We were very fortunate to receive other sustainable slopes grants. We put vestibules in different entryways, and we did a lot of other capital projects. But I feel like for the first time now, after going through this process with the Brendel Group, which did take several months. We actually have um, a really good roadmap for the whole entire organization. That our whole executive team is on board, um, and with our goal of achieving carbon neutrality by 2025.
2: Sounds like there's a lot going on there, uh, and and you know I think with many uh, sustainability efforts, it seems like you know once you get the ball rolling, it can it can really sort of um, expand logarithmically in, in all directions
3: yeah you just have to make the case for it to make business sense, and that's finally what I feel like we harnessed last year.
2: That's great and good to know that there are organizations out there to support your work and and uh, help make that you know really possible and 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 you know put it in language in terms that that um, that everybody can kind of relate to uh, and make those decisions around really great. Megan has a good question here, and I'd love to turn the mic over to Megan to ask her question. I think, Kim, it would be great uh, for you to maybe uh, be the first to kind of pitch in with your answer. So, uh, Megan, how about if you uh, ask your question to Kim?
4: Sure, thanks. Um, to me, adopting sustainability practices seems like a win-win, but I'm not in a position to do much more than gently suggest ideas. Do you have advice for someone who is passionate about sustainability but feels unable to make sustainable improvements? Yeah that's an interesting question because uh, I think it was referenced earlier that at times it is a trade-off between the economics and the sustainability. So it, I would recommend if you are having trouble within your organization um, getting traction with your ideas to Examine the economic aspect a little bit more first yourself and talk it through with people because at the end of the day, the decision makers, the executives in the organization, they may very well be on board with the project, but they may not be on board with it at the cost involved. So we've had this discussion a lot in our organization as well with projects that have, you know, been proposed by various stakeholders. We say, well, that sounds great, but you know what, when we work through it, it's, uh, it's not super affordable. And so what else can we do uh, to, to try to bring the cost down? There might be government grants or there might be creative solutions that just haven't come to the forefront yet. Uh, one example that, uh, that we're working through right now kind of builds off of Peggy's uh, discussions with respect to compost. And we are just currently looking at uh, a fairly comprehensive composting program right now. We haven't really been able to do so yet because we don't have any municipal compost facilities near us. So there's basically been no place to, to take the compost but uh, the town of Banff, which is about 45 minutes from us, they have recently opened up um, a municipal composting facility. Every, everything was a lot slower in the national parks than elsewhere, so that's why uh, we haven't had this option to date. So now we are starting to implement an organic diversion program, but it's definitely not cheap. It comes at a cost, and what we're looking at doing is having some manually separate all of the uh, various components of the cafeteria trays for example recycling goes here uh, and on that note we're really hoping to get a better um, recycling capture rate for bottles and cans because surprisingly a lot of people still throw their bottles and cans in the trash so having somebody Do that uh, in a jurisdiction like we're in with $15 minimum wage can add up fairly quickly. And then the the trucking of the compost, the capture of the organics, it all comes at a cost. So what we've had to do is we've had to look at creative ways that we can still do this, uh, yet have it come in at a total cost that's not that much above sending it to the landfill. So solutions are out there. Uh, it just takes some creative thinking and even you know, even look at are there any grants that you can get for this? There's a lot of sustainability grants out there for various initiatives, and that can often help as well. So I guess bottom line, what I would recommend is uh, I think sustainability is a win-win, like you say, but when it comes to individual projects, uh, sometimes the cost does come in at uh, a figure that is, a little bit alarming to the the higher executives in the organization and so what can you do to to make that project look more palatable from that perspective
5: and Megan if um sure. if you present environmental projects that actually return money i think you have a you've cleared a lot of hurdles especially with your accounting and finance teams um, and for you specifically like um, snowmaking efficiency and dirt work if you have a terrain park, I think you do um that you can reduce your overall energy consumption, which is a hugely positive environmental um, reduce your water consumption and um, reduce costs generally those things carry move through much faster than ones that are uh, actual cost to the bottom line, and they're more sustainable
3: well i I would also just add that if there's something that would fit with your company culture. Like even just starting somewhere, um, it doesn't have to be certainly a bigger project would have a bigger impact. But if it starts to create that culture, if it's not exactly there yet, um, that you shouldn't be a fry, afraid to just start kind of somewhere and start a conversation. I certainly chime in with um, the good comments from Kim and Rich between looking for grants, um, making it be a win-win financially as well um, but then also just get the piece of the culture and maybe who else in your team with is sort of in that same camp as you or you start that conversation somewhere
2: yeah and, and one thing I'll add to uh, to that is um, finding out from your colleagues and peers who might also have a, a you know, ideas or passion around the subject too, because you know, building a coalition or building, you know, understanding the momentum in the organization, you know, from an from an organizational development perspective is also really helpful in this. So, if you put those things together, the homework, uh, the sort of the business case, and the fact that there may be some momentum in the organization, you might have a really powerful statement and or case to make to um, some of your leadership and in the in the organization to to pay attention uh, to the issue. So. Um, Great conversation, folks.
3: And i sorry, Polly, one more thing that just I thought of is that the industry has done so much. Um, You know, NSAA has really made a focus of sustainability as well as uh, SAM Magazine and, like I mentioned, the Brendel Group and the Climate Challenge, that's a subset of NSAA. There are a lot of other resources within the industry, and I don't feel like people have to reinvent the wheel. and I just would be throwing out there, I mentioned Shaw Miklas, who works for us. She is more than happy to talk to anybody at other ski areas, uh, as well as myself and others here at A-Basin, about what are some things that might have helped, you know, what best practices, that kind of stuff, too.
2: Really interesting. Thank you. And and Peggy, this next one's coming to you. And I'm, I'm going to suggest, Greg, if you could share your question, since we're talking a little bit about um you know how to how to move things forward through an organization your your question seems really appropriate right now so greg why don't you take it away and ask peggy your question of course the other two mentors can chime in as well
4: in your experience how would you go about motivating employees to be more eco-friendly and encourage sustainability
3: great question greg um i've actually found uh especially as we're in the the full swing of the millennial generation that our employees want us if we ask them out of the blue are you interested in working for a company that's more sustainable or not they are definitely really motivated already about being sustainable and they want to know how to participate now they may that may not exactly be the case um, at every organization um, but certainly for the the youngest demographic or the millennial and the gen Zs coming into they are are definitely passionate so tapping into that generation if, if that's prevalent at your ski area um, would maybe be a good place to start um, I also feel like if it's part of the the training and the culture from day one like we do a pretty big sustainability conversation within our onboarding orientation. And um, people pretty much know as they're coming in and starting with us that this is a really key piece of who Arapahoe Basin is. And we talk about it at every gathering of employees, st- weekly staff meeting. Um, we have sustainability plans by each department. so. It, it's a lot of conversation, and it's taken us years to kind of get where we are. But um, and getting the managers on board is is really key too, because if they're saying this is a priority to their own staff, their own employees, um, then they almost don't have a choice. If that makes any sense.
5: Yeah, we uh, created an um, employee-driven environmental board, um, and the participation uh, was well more than we could handle. And I do agree with what Peggy said. It seems like the, certainly even the uh, up to 45, 50 years old, that generation, is, everyone seemed to be very involved in um, promoting environmental concepts. So we did not have any issues with implementation. In fact, we probably get too many ideas that we can realistically accomplish.
4: Yeah, I'll just add to that a little bit. I I definitely agree that it's a bit of a an age-related thing and a demographics-related thing, uh, we don't have any problem at all getting buy-in among the uh, the younger members of our team who have grown up in an era of sustainability. And as mentioned, in fact, they're often the drivers of a lot of the projects. But sometimes we do run into uh, a little bit of roadblocks when we try to uh, implement things that that might be a little bit harder for people to do uh, who have been doing things the same way for years and years or decades. So I guess what uh, what I have noticed is that if, if we make it easy for people, then they're more inclined to go with the sustainable option. Um, just a really small example, we, we now give our staff members reusable mugs and everybody has a mug and so there's no excuse anymore to um, To use a disposable cup in the cafeteria for your coffee or your tea or whatever. And so this has really reduced our disposable use among staff members. And then we give free coffee as an extra added incentive. So just put things front and center and make things easy. And that's often the
0: first step to getting more buy in. We'll be right back after we thank PodSam and Summit Series partner, Leitner Palma. Leitner Palma of America moves people. Literally, that's what they do. They move people. They offer a complete line of cable transport systems from surface lifts to chairlifts to gondolas. Lightner Palma can design, engineer, manufacture, and maintain the transportation systems that get you to the top. Check out lightner palmacom and touch base with the lift experts on their team. wwwlightner palmacom
2: I mean, this is sort of bringing up the uh, the idea of, um, you know, how do you influence people to help them see things in a new way uh, or to uh, get them to kind of get on board with uh, the ideas that you've got? And it seems like a perfect transition and segue to Eric's question, who, uh, you know, Eric, if you want to ask your question, I think, Rich, you, you might want to take the first crack at it, and then we'll uh, ask the other mentors to chime in as well.
5: In what ways have you made a positive impact and obtained buy-in from environmental advocacy groups and local stakeholders while implementing phases of a master plan or expanding a use permit? Going through that process right now, um, with Aspen Mountain, we just um, dropped a master plan with the Forest Service about six months ago and the first two projects have been approved. The, um, The local environmental groups obviously they generally are concerned about any type of expansion. And the second component is that they're concerned about snowmaking from energy and water consumption. And water in Colorado is a pretty big deal. So we actually involved the stakeholders, environmental stakeholders, long before we went to the Forest Service. And we explained what we were trying to do. And we let them have as much input to minimize environmental impacts, number one, and then number two, address their concerns. And we were fairly successful at doing that. To the point where um, literally less than an hour before this phone call, the Forest Service released a record of decision for the master plan. And I don't believe there'll be any objections to that from any of the groups. Um, that there could be some outside ones outside of the state that um, can't weigh in. So that was number one involvement with the stakeholders. And then number two, I, I would call it doing the right thing. So in certain areas, um, we in this particular um Aspen Mountain is a, a former mining camp, and so it is uh, pretty heavily industrialized. but we were able to um, create pods uh, that we would leave untouched specifically for wildlife. We do our um, most of our limbing and treeing uh, tree cutting over snow to minimize impacts to the ground. We built a storage pond at over 11,000 feet, which minimizes energy use, also stores water, which is a valuable thing for the valley. And we release that water when it's needed in the summer, meaning when the snow is melting at high altitudes. And we went through and addressed, um, I guess, as many of the objections as we could with a reasonable um, kind of solution. Some of them that we couldn't address, you know, view plane issues. We can't, I mean, we're a ski area and there's going to be runs visible and lifts visible. We do believe, and the Forest Service actually agreed, that creating a ski run enhances the terrain for certain types of animals, especially deer and elk at high altitudes. So that was actually a positive in this case. Um, But really, um, I guess not trying to greenwash and cover up things, but bringing the groups in that will have objections sooner rather than later. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for that information.
4: Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll add to that. I mean, I definitely echo the fact that involving stakeholders from the front end is absolutely key and full engagement rather than just kind of um, not as comprehensive kind of consulting and telling them what you're planning on doing. Full engagement is, is something that is a little bit harder to do is actually listening to what they have to say and listening to what their concerns are and being prepared to modify your plans in response to to what the environmental groups are saying so we've had some success with that Uh, right now we're also in um fairly far along the line in proposing a master plan for the next 10 or 15 years at lake louise and we have been very active in involving our environmental stakeholders uh, from the front end in in a comprehensive way and we've seen that that that's been very beneficial for us. The other thing that I might add that uh, that hasn't been touched on yet is to really have a focus on basing your plans on real sound science. Uh, We've got a team of you know ecologists, vegetation specialists, wildlife biologists, hydrologists Do not be afraid to spend a little bit more at the front end because it will pay off down the line in terms of getting your plans passed and and minimizing opposition to your plans. If you really have very comprehensive environmental assessments ahead of time and you have have anticipated concerns and you've addressed them ahead of time and you really uh, demonstrate that you are very serious about doing things in an environmentally responsible way.
3: Very, very similar. We are on 100% Forest Service land, Um, so we do, with any of our master development planning, or um, we do need to go through the whole NEPA process. And actually, very exciting, this week uh, saw 10 years of hard work pay off with opening up our expansion here at Arapahoe Basin. But um, thinking back to the steps we took, we along with all the great things that both Rich and Kim have said we um also did uh tours where we actually reached out and invited um different members of environmental nonprofits and and stakeholders in the, along those lines to go out and walk the area that we wanted to expand into um as even pre the process of submitting the master development plan to the forest service so just another example of what uh, Kim and Rich already said about really doing your homework and getting stakeholders aware and involved. You may still get some resistance and some pushback, but at least everybody's going into it with a, a clear understanding of what you're asking to do.
4: And actually, that reminds me, another another thing that we did that we had a lot of success with is that we hosted an open house roundtable session between all of the various scientists that worked on our environmental assessments and uh, individuals from the environmental groups so that they could sit down face to face and chat and that was very well received as well.
2: There's nothing like that authenticity, right, to make sure that um, people feel included in the process, definitely. Um, Kim, don't mute yourself. You're next for this question uh, from Christina. Uh, Christina, you have a question. I thought uh, Kim would be great to take the first shot at it. And of course, we'll have the other mentors chime in as well. But uh, Christina, can you ask your question?
0: Hey, Paul. I'm going to jump in and ask that question on Christina's behalf since she's having some technical issues. Her question was. How do you most effectively coordinate sustainability efforts without having a sustainability office or designated point person?
4: Uh, I would say, I mean, for ourselves, we do have an environmental office and um, full-time environmental staff. So they are our point people on environmental projects. But in the absence of that function in your organization, I would say that it would be key to consider appointing somebody to take on that role, even on an ad hoc basis. Somebody that can really be a champion for the cause and can be somebody through which all of the information can filter and can, uh, can really be that point person. Um, in the absence of an, full-on environmental office, uh, I'm sure it can be a lot more challenging. But uh, there's lots of people that are interested in sustainability, and uh, and look for that person within your organization.
5: Yeah, I would ag- agree. You cannot really have sustained environmental initiatives without a champion, whether it's paid position or or just allocated resource, you know, uh, time for people. You have to have uh, people pushing initiatives forward. So. Um, dedicating resources to that needs to happen.
3: And and I agree, too. Um, I, I do think it always helps. Um, I think this is already touched on, but that it's really important to find somebody who's passionate. Um, and as we have done for many years, we have added it on to somebody else's job, um, but have found a way and Shaw, um, who I've mentioned before, actually now has a dedicated person who reports to her who is also a sustainability manager. So we've seen it grow. Um, But the other way it could go too, just to throw it out there, is if the executive team um, or executive leadership is really into sustainability and they can build it into their own goals for the organization, then there may be a way to, to really have it jumpstart that way and, until um, an organization, a department can be created or uh, a
2: position can be created. Um, I'll, I'll just chime in quickly to, to share some, some research that uh, McKinsey and company did that talked about uh, why change efforts fail. And it's usually because there is not executive level or, you know, high enough level sponsorship or support for the kinds of change efforts, whether they're, you know, environmental sustainable, sustainability efforts or any other kind of change initiative, uh, you need to have high level sponsorship uh, and buy-in uh, in order for them to succeed typically in, in business. So uh, I'd like to uh, ask Tess, to uh, share her question and bat cleanup for us uh, with her her question to all of the mentors, uh, but we'll take it. You know, Rich, Peggy, Kim, and then uh, and then we'll conclude. But Tess, can you share your question? Awesome, thanks,
1: guys. And I just want to apologize. I'm a little under the weather, so I hope you can hear me all right. But um, what areas of the resort do you guys see <laughs> as having the biggest potential for sustainability savings in the future?
5: Um, from my perspective, snowmaking um, is by far the en- largest energy user, the largest um, water user, and has the most impact um, on the environment. And reducing snowmaking or making it as efficient as possible um, is is key. Fifteen years ago, um, we I want to just say we we would burn hundred um, thousand kilowatt hours to make snow. And today we burn about the same amount of energy and we make twice as much snow. And that was a conscious effort to upgrade our snowmaking fleet um, across the board. Then reducing water consumption is another huge component for environmentalism, especially in the West. And snowmaking is non consumptive, so um, it's 80% non consumptive. So it's not as bad as it sounds, but we do work with our pipes, for instance that um after you're done you reduce 10 to 15 million gallons for the pipe build so when you look at the x games underneath that pipe is a um it's dirt work um how do you say it's a form made out of dirt that is in the shape of the pipe that we just make much less snow with Um, we have what we call temperature discipline which becomes a challenge because as things get warmer we lose the ability to make snow but when you're making snow at single digit temps you're 82% more efficient than when you are at 26 degrees um, Fahrenheit. So we start off the season with only making snow when it's the most effective from energy perspective and from a water perspective. Um, as you approach the start of a season or a World Cup, it becomes much more challenging to do that. So we gradually release those restrictions. In a year like this one, we would um, we had a terrific snowmaking. We've had a very cold November, in fact record cold November, We will now try to finish making snow in November and not fire up at all in December, which will save the company um, several million dollars, but more importantly, reduces the energy consumption by a a huge amount as well. So those are the kinds of things. But I think from a single biggest um, uh, environmental perspective, snowmaking is the biggest one.
3: Yeah, so from Arapaho Basin's perspective, we actually don't have a whole lot of snowmaking so our actual uh, biggest area to tackle is electricity overall but in particular we're tackling electricity and trying to make our buildings um, more efficient and build in um, better control systems uh, especially with heating and lighting and uh, looking for alternatives whether it's a a microgrid for electricity um, like solar installations or other options here at Arapahoe Basin or ones that we can participate in nearby um, to help us get to that carbon neutral goal. So it, it's just interesting, I think uh, Aspen obviously is a very different ski resort than Arapahoe Basin. Um, so it's gonna be an area that's specific to each ski area and where their consumption um, of resources is the highest. So
5: that's just my perspective. Yeah, there's no question. And um, Arapahoe Basin is at least 2,000 feet higher and I think much snowier than Aspen by far. Well, we
3: don't have your water either <laughs> or snowmaking capability. So yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah snowmaking and water consumption obviously are, are key. And if you're just starting uh, in these efforts those are certainly the first areas to look at. Uh, Electricity and electric use, obviously that's an area as well that uh, you can really see substantial savings. And one of the third areas that we have uh, been looking at in more detail lately are uh, waste disposal costs. And we've been able to identify quite a few areas of possible savings just in terms of, you know, what we're bringing onto the mountain that needs to be disposed of, how we're separating our waste, what we're doing with our waste, um, how we're implementing our recycling programs, et cetera, et cetera. And um, and if... if, uh, if you've made good efforts in snowmaking and electricity use, then certainly start to look at your waste disposal costs because that's an area of potential savings as well.
2: Thank you so much. What an interesting conversation! It just sounds like there's so much opportunity uh, to uh, really drive you know sustainability efforts across these uh, across the the resorts and, and ski areas. Uh, I've really appreciated hearing all of these great things. For me, it's uh, an eye-opener. I hope it's been educational and interesting for the mentees as well. Uh, I really uh, thank our mentors for, for the great responses to the questions. Thanks to the mentees for, our, uh, for, those, for your, the questions that you've asked. And I want to toss it back to conclude our session for today.
0: Feeling fired up and want more on sustainability? Here's a tip. Subscribers to SAM magazine can access the SAM digital archives and read articles like Eco Tip, which covers resorts around the world and what they are doing to go green, or in-depth reports on the impact of climate change on the mountain resort industry. But you can only get those if you subscribe to SAM. So head to saminfo.com slash subscribe and sign up. And if you want more information on the Sam Summit series, head to saminfo.com or dig into a recent print edition of the magazine. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. The PodSAM advisor is Alex Kaufman. I am Sarah Bordaev, and thank you for listening to PodSAM.